I don't have anything to say about the Texas OU game. <laughs> Nothing to say about the Texas OU game. Nothing to say about it. Sick and bears, right? So, um, we've been studying the life of Joseph. I, I found that, that we do best with history when we wrap it in the context of individuals and people. And Joseph is just one of the most attractive people in all of Scripture. He, he, in fact, that's why English literature, even Broadway, has, has stories based on the life of Joseph. It's just such a fascinating story. Last week, we, we looked at, at the beginning of the story when he appears as one of the sons of Jacob, and he is the favored son who gets the fancy coat, and his, he tells on his brothers because he's a bit of a brat, and he gets thrown by his brothers into a hole, and they ultimately sell him into slavery. And, and here you have this man whom God has given these supernatural dreams that says God's going to do these great things in his life, and then the rest of the chapter is how God doesn't do any of that. And, and I hope you noticed that to understand the story of Joseph, you have to step back and think in terms of the time. Because what we do with other people's lives, we, we compress their lives, and we, we choose to ignore the difference between the time of the promise and the time of the blessing. And we say, well, look, at God promised it, and God did it. Isn't that easy? He doesn't do that for me. But in reality, uh, Joseph is a story of a, a man who has dreams. In fact, God-given dreams, remarkable dreams, and yet in so much of the story, his dreams are being crushed. They're broken dreams. And that's a universal thing. All of us struggle with broken dreams. Julie and I spent yesterday morning at a, at a, a cross-country match for junior high and high school. We, the season's been going all year. We picked when it finally wasn't hot. Um, because when you're older, you learn these things, right? And um, you see all these young kids, and they're in great shape, and they're beautiful, and they're so hopeful and excited, and, and then and, and, and you kind of think, oh, some of you are going to have some dreams crushed, right? You, you, one of the realities is, is you know that there are hard things in front of them, right? But we make a mistake to focus on just that and not see how God works even in the midst of those broken dreams. And Joseph is an amazing story of that. So he gets sold by his own brothers to a camel group, and they take him to Egypt. He's sold in the household of Potiphar. And then chapter 38 kind of begins with, meanwhile, back in Canaan, meanwhile, let's look at what happens to his brother Judah. And chapter 38 is one of those chapters that, again, you Thought, there are several chapters in Scripture, several books in Scripture, in fact, that I always thought, I wonder if my mother knows this is in the Bible. Um, you know, there's Song of Solomon. There's some passages I'm not sure my mother knew about. Um, and the story of chapter 38 has got some verses in there I'm not sure my mother read because she told me to read my Bible. And in fact, I'm not going to read it all out loud because I don't know, you know, who may be here. The, and, and then we look at chapter 39, which I believe is intended to be a contrast to laid right alongside of 38. So if you will, turn to Genesis chapter 38. We look at Scripture because God has foreordained in eternity to teach us how to understand Him and our lives 
through this book, and we look at this book so that we can be equipped to live our lives in the 21st century well in light of that. Genesis chapter 38. We have two dreamers in the story. The first dreamer is in chapter 38. The second dreamer is chapter 39. Verse 1. I've called this section convenient hypocrisy. The focus of the the story is Judah, who is the blessed son. He is the one through whom the Messiah will actually come, the one son of promise, but he is also, in the early parts of the story, not a good guy. In fact, he is a quintessential, quintessential hypocrite in this story, especially when the hypocrisy is convenience to his agenda. Now I'm going to read verse 1. I keep faking you out. At that time, Judah left his brothers, and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he married her and lay with her. Notice he has already strayed from God's will in marrying a Canaanite woman. They were encouraged not to engage with the Canaanites, but instead engage, if they did, with people from nations outside of Canaan because of the idolatry of the Canaanites. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur, and she conceived again and gave birth to another son named Onan, and she gave birth to still another son named Shelah, and it was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. And Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. One of those verses you wonder, I wonder what the rest of the story is. What did he do? What did he do that God would take his life? Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill the duty, your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for you. Okay, pull yourself out of the 21st century. We're going to go back to ancient times in the ancient Near East and, and, and multiple legal codes of the ancient Near East, there was this function called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was a means by which those peoples cared for widowed women. Um, in the ancient Near East, a woman without a male heir was, was incredibly vulnerable in society because it was such a patriarchal system and the land was passed to the sons. And so the multiple, including the Hittites and others, had this provision called leveret marriage. It's also described in Deuteronomy, and I've given you the passage in Deuteronomy and the readings and the notes. Um, To us, it it just seems crazy, but remember, these were very, very, very different times. And even though this is before the law is written, the the nation of Israel has elaborate marriage. And so, this oldest son, Ur, erred by dying, and as a result of that, um, Jacob, excuse me, Judah, this Judah, pardon me for, I keep doing that back and forth, Judah um, gives Tamar, his wife, to the second son, Onan. Because by the law, in all of the ancient Near East, her firstborn son would be considered an heir of Ur. In other words, it would be a continuation of that family line. And remember that the, the real estate 
the agricultural land would have descended through those male heirs. And this would provide that his segment of the family was in a given land. It wouldn't be lost in the inheritance of the other brothers. It was a means by which families were protected and the wealth of families was protected. You with me? Very odd. Um, you women, you're having a moment. You're thinking about your brother-in-law. Relax, okay? Just relax. We don't do it now, but I could see it on your faces. Um, so, Judah acts according to the law, and, and Tamar is given to the older of the younger brother. Uh, verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah recovered, oh, I forgot, I left out. Uh, I apologize. Go back to verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife, fulfill your duty. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he did not do what was necessary in order to have a child. That's what the text says very carefully. That's what the Hebrew reads very, very carefully. Um, another one of those verses you thought, hey, mom, do you see this? Um, by the way, this is the passage, the primary passage, there are others, but this is the primary passage that the Roman Catholic Church's, Church uses to not allow a contraception. Uh, th there is a biblical basis for it. I believe it's a misunderstanding. The, the sin of Onan was not related to contraception. It was related to his refusal to do what was required for the sake of his brother. Because that, that he would have, frankly, he would have lost some inheritance if she had had a child, a son. He's just, he's just working for his money here. In other words, if, if Tamar has a son, then the inheritance would be divided further between the sons. His portion of the inheritance would be shrunk. Therefore, he chooses not to play his part in allowing Tamar to have a son. That's what the story is about. But it's interesting to see this is the passage that the Roman Catholic Church most often cites. Um, verse 10, and when he, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. Why? Because of his intent. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought good grief, he'll die too, like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. He's gotten a little superstitious now. Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. Uh, sheep shearing was a big event. It was a time, it was like the harvest festival. It was a time of great celebration. There would have been festivals. There would have been drinking. It was a party, much as it is in College Station to this day. So when Tamar was, what? When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, he had not been given to her as his wife. Him as her. When Judah saw her, 
He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, uh, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from the flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. The seal was a little cylinder that they would roll over things and would give the imprint that showed who he was. It was, a, it was kind of like a, a, we do with wax seals today, and the cord would have been what he held it around his neck for. And the staff would have been engraved on the top with things that signified. These are things that represent the, his significance as the patriarch of his family. Um, so he gave them to her, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, he took, she took off the veil and put on widow's clothes again. Um, verse 20, meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he didn't find her. Isn't it interesting? Judah's willing to meet his pledge of a goat to a prostitute, but he's unwilling to meet his obligations to his daughter-in-law. Isn't that sad? Because, see, the thing with the prostitute could hurt him. And, and his integrity was for sale. See, all of us have a certain amount of integrity as long as it doesn't cost us too much. Uh, but that's, that's not the issue. Integrity is, is what we do when it costs us something, when, when there's a price to be paid. And, and he suddenly had integrity over a goat because she had his seal and his staff. But when it came to Tamar, he had no integrity because what, she, what could she do to him? One of the things you'll see in the Old Testament especially, but in the New Testament well, as Oftentimes, it's the women who are the heroes, guys. I hate to break this to you. The women are the heroes. Tamar is one of four women who will appear in the genealogy of Matthew and in, in the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus. And, and you know, Ruth and, and uh, these other women who, who, even though they're not Jewish, they, they have integrity. She's one of those. And although what she did is posing as a prostitute, for us is very uncomfortable. Remember that what she's trying to do desperately in a world where she has no ability to care for herself is to provide for her husband's inheritance. And, and Scripture doesn't necessarily endorse in it, but on the other hand, it, God works through messy people. I mean, Judah is not exactly the head of your Boy Scout troop here, right? And, and, and Tamar needs a little work before we put her over a women's Bible study on Tuesday morning, right? So he sends the goat, and they can't find her. He says, where is the shrine for the prostitute on the road to Anayim, verse 21? And they said, there never, never has been a shrine prostitute there. Well, he was probably a little tanked at the time. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. The men who live there said, there's never a shrine prostitute there. And Judah said, well, she can keep what she has. Notice why he suddenly has integrity. Lest I become a laughingstock. 
after all. I did send the goat. Well, aren't you noble? We're so proud of you, Judah. And about three months later, uh, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law and Tamar is guilty of prostitution because she's pregnant. And Judah, in a moment of deep righteousness and concern for what is good and right, said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Which even the Old Testament law doesn't prescribe for prostitution. In fact, uh, uh, if a man and woman are caught in, caught in adultery in the Old Testament law, both would be stoned, right? But oftentimes, for instance, the woman who's brought to the Lord for adultery, the, uh, only the woman got brought. The man kind of slid out. And that, that's part of the reason for those stories being so significant is, is Jesus is highlighting the hypocrisy of the moment. Verse 25, and after she was brought out, she sent a messenger to the father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And suddenly things got really awkward for everyone. And she added, do you recognize this seal and cord and staff, who they belong to? And Judah recognized them. And the next verse is viewed by scholars as the turning point in the life of Judah. Because he says, she is more righteous than I. Because the problem is, I wouldn't give her my, to my son, Sheila. And he never slept with her again. Isn't it amazing how sometimes even know we know what is right is the character of someone else who causes us to have integrity ourselves? He knew what was right. She didn't teach him something new about what was right and wrong. But he saw this woman who had so much to lose and whom he took advantage of her weakness, and, and he sees her seeking with all she had to do what's best she could. And he said, that's what righteousness looks like. By the way, that's why... When we live in the world, sometimes we get frustrated, especially in corporate America and everything, where you, you can't necessarily have the kind of verbal testimony you'd love to have at times. You know, you're limited and everything, and you wonder, do I make any difference? But we never know when just doing the right thing God might use in someone else's life. Not trying to draw attention to ourselves, or anything, just doing the right thing. Tamar is, is this woman who, who's just trying to do the best she can. And Judah, who has power, says, oh, man, she's a Canaanite. I'm a son of the promise, and yet she's righteous. And, and the trajectory of Judah's life changes from here on out. Interestingly, he becomes a better man. Verse 27, when the time came for her to give birth. There were two boys in her womb, and as she was giving birth, one of them put his hand out. And the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, oh, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. 
And his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. And very intentionally parallelism going here between the twin brothers Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Esau, and these twin brothers. And in, in both cases, the, the second one is the one who chooses to be blessed. Because, see, God doesn't always worry about our systems. He, he chooses to work as He will. And, and Perez is the one, is the son of Tamar, who will be found in the genealogy of Jesus. That genealogy is, is it's just full of messy people. Because that's one of the themes you're going to get. Is, it's just God works through incredibly messy people. Someone told me a long time ago, if, if they can make penicillin out of molded cheese, then God can do something with you. I felt deeply blessed. Um, um, but, but the reality is one of the great mysteries is how God uses all these broken people. Chapter 39. Now Joseph, oh, Joseph, poor old Joseph. He, by the way, chapter 38 probably is over in a period of 20 years. It, it is concurrent with the story of Joseph. It, so it's kind of like it said, you know how movies do? Meanwhile, now back in Egypt. We're back in Egypt. <laughs> Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put in charge uh, the whole household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. And from that time, he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and the field. So he left Joseph's care, everything he had with Joseph in charge. He didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Here, Joseph, poor guy, gets thrown into a pit by his own brothers. Thanks, guys. And then they sell him into slavery. He gets carried off to a pagan land, one of the greatest, most powerful empires in all the world, and he, he ends up working for a guy named Potiphar, and God made him successful. Did you catch that? How many times it said God granted him success? It said that last week in, in the previous chapter, 37. It'll say it again. God keeps making him successful. You have this tension in Scripture that we have in our lives, and that tension is that God sovereignly works to do His will, and yet we have a responsibility to do what we're called to do. Does this mean that Joseph didn't work hard? He just sat around and God just kept throwing success at him. I don't think so. One of the things God sovereignly uses is faithfulness and, and hard work and all of those blessings. But, but does this mean that, that Joseph is just that spectacularly different from everyone else that lived so that God just couldn't help himself but bless him? No, it, it said God had a plan for Joseph, and he, he used Joseph spectacularly in that plan to do his work. So you have, you have God's sovereign control over it our lives in one sense, and yet our responsibility. And that is a tension that we will never, ever solve. Maybe when we're in heaven, but I'm not even sure we'll understand it in heaven, because God is limitless and we're pretty limited, right? Um, see, if God wasn't in control, He couldn't, he couldn't meet the promise He made to Joseph and Jacob and Isaac 
and Abram. See, we, we want God to keep promises, but he can't keep promises if he's not in control. If he's sitting up in, hands, up in heaven wringing his hands saying, man, I hope this turns out real well, then, then he has no ability to come through with what he's promised, right? The very fact that he makes promises implies that somehow he works through the circumstances of life. And Joseph is one of those that God just spectacularly blesses. And yet, we know intuitively that he probably worked pretty hard to get there because everywhere he goes, Joseph gets recognized for all of his good work. Um, and, and we have to be really careful how we look at that theme of success because when we define success as, as this kind of material success and that becomes the end of everything and all God is doing there is to promise us peace and prosperity, then we make God our handmaiden for our personal comfort. And that's really not what God is about. There, there, there were other people at the time of this narrative who were faithful to God who were not experiencing the kind of success that Joseph had. But that didn't mean they were less faithful. God had a plan for Joseph that he didn't have for anyone else. It was unique. And God gave him special dreams because God had for him a special plan. But there were other people whose dreams and fulfillment were nowhere near as spectacular. And God's still at work in all of them. In fact, sometimes when we get frustrated when God doesn't come around in the timing we would want and is answering our prayers and living out the dreams, sometimes dreams we think we got from Him, we forget that He's got a billion other lives. He's got to work around His plan as well. So sometimes I think if, he could, if, if we could hear Him, He'd say, just cool your jets. I've got a few billion people to take care of. I'll get to you in time, Right? And the story of Israel is this, is this reminder of how God uses broken people and broken institutions to work out His perfect plan to accomplish His perfect will, which demonstrates His grace and mercy and righteousness, even in the midst of human brokenness. Does any of that sound familiar to our lives today? Do, do we think that somehow... The world is, is more broken now than it's ever been. Do we think that, that at times it seems more out of control than it's ever been? Do we, do we buy into the silliness of thinking somehow evil is more evil now than it's ever been? Or good is more good now than it's ever been? The reality is this is, this is humanity. And God gives us the story of Israel as just such a perfect illustration of, of how he works in the midst of all this brokenness that we call life, and, and through people who are an absolute mess. I mean, this story sounds like an East Texas family reunion, for crying out loud. I mean, you just, uh, here's my brother Daryl and my other brother Daryl. You know what I mean? You know, you go to East Texas reunions to meet women. It's great, but it's just an, I'm sorry, I got to stop. It's just, y'all know I'm from East Texas. These are my people. I'm not picking on anyone. Ask Julie about my family reunions. Anyway, the Lord prospered him, and everything he did turned out well. But then the gross injustice of the last of the chapter begins. Look at the half, last half of chapter 6. I mean, verse 6. Joseph was well-built and handsome, probably tall, too. 
by the way. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. By the way, there's this, this thing going around that somehow men are necessarily more evil than women. And it's true that men have abused their power over women throughout history. But notice when women are in power, they can abuse it as well. We, we are foolish when we somehow say that the curse, that the, the brokenness of sin is somehow gender-specific. Uh, men have done terrible, terrible things because they had the power to do it. But Jezebel, Potiphar's wife, there are certainly examples in Scripture and in life where when women have power, they can abuse it as well. We like to demonize certain categories of people because then we think we're exempt from it. The reality is any of us is capable of abusing power when we have it. To, to me, the story of the French Revolution is a constant reminder that when the weak get power, they often become just like the powerful ones they displaced. The, the issue is an issue of character, and character is ultimately tested in two circumstances. When the price of obedience is high or the power of disobedience is high. And either of those will reveal what we really are. And so Potiphar's wife is one of those incredibly evil people. And historically, slavery is an excuse for sexual abuse of the weak. It was in the time of the Egyptian Empire. It was in the time of the Roman Empire. Horrible abuses happened by, uh, by the Roman emperors. It was in the, tire, uh, in the antebellum south. The fact is slavery is often excused to use, abuse people sexually. Because when there is power, power can often abuse the weak. And he refused, verse 8. How easy would it have been for this young man, probably in his late teens, to say, oh, she's my master's wife. I mean, she, how easy would it have been for him to compromise? But he says, my he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in the house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. And then how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Notice it's ultimately against God. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day by, uh, he went in to the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. And she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. And he ran. Mike Fisher, the previous pastor here, used to tell me, Wildman, sometimes it's good to be a godly coward. Some things you just need to run from. Um, and he runs. And notice he leaves his cloak behind. And just as Judah was rightly indicted, because he had left his seal and staff behind. Here, Joseph is wrongly indicted because she grabs his cloak. In other words, you see these parallelisms that were intended to force us to see there's a comparison going on in the text. When she saw that he left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her servants and said, look, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. And he came in here to sleep with me. But I screamed. When he heard me, he screamed. 
screamed for help. He left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And she kept the cloak till her master came home. And she told him the story of that Hebrew slave you brought come to me and make sport of me. And as soon as I screamed for help, he left the cloak and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And then this crazy, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention exactly what had happened before. He's just given control of everything because God is still in Joseph's life. And God has made promises to Joseph. But I'm suspecting Joseph is having a lot of late-night prayers where he says, Lord, you remember those dreams? Remember those, those promises? I mean, I'll grant you it's better for me in prison than it could be, but this isn't exactly what I had in mind, Lord. What are you doing? What in the world are you doing? And God, if He would speak, as He speaks to us through His Word, He says it wasn't time yet. He, he yet had a plan. He, he was yet doing something else. And whether Joseph felt it or not, God was yet in control. And God was working even through the injustices. Because dreams that are broken aren't necessarily lost. Tamar and Joseph are reaching for their dreams. She finds them, honestly, by her own efforts and even her scheming. He finds his by being faithful in circumstances that he can't control. But God's hand is evident in both. Um, men and women, life is complicated. It takes weird turns. And as people of faith, there are times when you just say, Lord, Help me here. I can't make sense of this. You may be in your own cistern. You may have experienced injustice at the hands of people you knew. And, and you, you say, Lord, or maybe even you failed. And the disillusionment is not only with other people and with God, but it's, it's, it's with yourself. But these stories show that God's yet at work. God is yet at work. And, and while our hurt is real and our struggle is real, God is yet at work. And, and He will work His plan. And He's in charge. And we need to be faithful. And when we're not, He's merciful. But He's still at work. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that sometimes Your timetable really messes us up. Sometimes we wonder where You are, especially when there's injustice and struggle. And Father, we pray that you would give confidence in your faithfulness to us, that we would trust you even when things seem so hard, that we would believe 
that you can work through the brokenness of those around us and even our own brokenness to do your perfect will. Father, we pray for our nation and all its divisions that somehow you will work. We pray for our city with another police shooting and so much hurt. Lord, we pray knowing somehow you will work. We pray for our community here at Grace that we would be a faithful witness, broken, in need of your grace, but somehow you will use us to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.